This is an ABC podcast. Greetings, gladies and potties from uh, Gadigal Land. Welcome to another Late Night Live on RN Summer. One of the joys of doing the program is getting the chance to talk to people all over the world about what's happening in their neck of the woods. And in today's program, we're going to introduce you to two fascinating writers from Nigeria, and in particular, the vibrant city of Lagos. Welcome, beloved listeners, to this special edition of LNL, which tonight could be called Late Night Lagos, because that's where we're heading, after a city so big, its population outnumbers London, New York and Uruguay combined. And I want to kick off by reading you a wonderful description of the city, penned by our first guest tonight, Depot Faloyan. He writes... Lagos is loud and plagued by joy. It sounds like impatience and over-familiarity. It moves like a culture built on faith and certainty being the same thing. It's stitched to the same vague tones of a dream, where imagination seems to outpace movement and progress is grounded in intention, if not reality. Lagos has highs of 40 degrees and lows of persistent power cuts. Its vistas are framed by large palm trees and an almost 100% black demographic. Every day, the piercing sun sprays across its natural grey filter through a swarm of bright yellow buses and sticks to what science believes to be the happiest people on earth. End of quote. Now, later, the author, Alosa Osunde, is going to introduce us to some of the larger-than-life characters that call this marvellous city home. But first, after a little bit of music, we talk to Depot about why Africa is not a country. In a 2009 TED Talk, the uh, Nigerian novelist uh, Shamanda Adichie warned us of the dangers of perpetuating a single story. Her talk has been viewed over 30 million times, yet still, when movies are released or news stories break on the continent, we're presented with pretty much the same simplistic stereotypes of Africa. Now, in his new book, Journalist and writer Depot Foloyan sets out to change that. He points out that Africa is a continent of 54 countries, more than 2,000 languages, and a population almost identical to that of China and India. And he reminds us that many of these countries are still working with the cards that they were dealt with as a result of colonialism and the continued interference of Western nations ever since. His book is called Africa is Not a Country, Breaking Stereotypes of Modern Africa, and it's a marvellous read. Despite the seriousness of the subject, it can also be very, very funny. Welcome to the program. Your book is deeply personal, and you begin by writing about your own hometown, if that's the right term for Lagos, which is uh, the continent's most populous city. Take us there. 
Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's such a privilege to be here today. Um, and yes, I start by talking about my family and my hometown. Um, firstly, because I think that it's incredibly important when we want to build connections with people to, to do so on a personal level, to see ourselves in their lives, to imagine ourselves in their, in their environment. Um, and the point of this book is to, to illustrate that, you know, Africa is a varied place, as varied as anywhere else in the world. And so, you know, to show that, I wanted to take everyone to, to Lagos, which is probably, in, in my mind, uh, truly one of a kind sort of place. Um, it makes very little sense uh, in terms of how the city is run, how it's governed. Um, it's about 20 million people, as I write, unburdened by self-doubt. Um, <laughs> they were just trying, trying their hardest to, to make their day-to-day -day work um, in a city with very few very few rules. And yeah, it does seem to work. Um, it's a beautiful place, incredibly special to, to me and my family. I talk about your book being funny. You say traffic is the city, the city's official sport, <laughs> and thinking small is a sin, as is arriving anywhere on time. <laughs> yes. I mean, thinking small is certainly a sin because in Lagos, you know, the hustle is real. It's there for you to, everyone in there is trying to make it in a place that has very few, very few actual rules. Um, and so, you know, uh, unfortunately, the lack of rules means that traffic is a constant burden in the city. And to drive around the city um, really every day is to, is to put your life in the hands of other people who have very little interest in, <laughs> in your safety. So, um, yeah, that, that really, really does sum up uh, what Lagos is all about. Now, tell us a bit about your family. You say that in your home, silence was the ultimate <laughs> punishment. We are, we're a big, boisterous family. We like to, we say discuss, but really it's argue about it, anything and everything. You know, every, everything is, is up for, uh, there, there needs to be consensus on, on big issues and small issues. Um, and so, you know, everyone at any moment is ready to give their opinion to everybody else's opinion. But uh, when, when that opinion is not forthcoming, then you know that, that you've done something wrong. Um, you know, it, it, when, when the home is silent, then, then something is wrong. To understand what's happening on the continent today, yeah, we need to look back at how the countries were created, and I quote, by people with poor maps and even poorer morals. So tell us about the Berlin Conference, please. Yep, so in 1884, the major colonial powers of the day gathered in Berlin to decide how they were going to carve up Africa. Um, now, they didn't do this thinking about the welfare of the people on the ground. Their main concern was that they would go to war with each other, you know, if they were fighting over pieces of land, um, you know, France and, 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 and Britain might, might decide to go to war over uh, Central Africa, for example. You know, they had very little idea what was on the continent. Um, and so they wanted to avoid all-out war with each other. They, they didn't really care about the lives of the, of the teachers and the poets and the artists and the, and the doctors on the ground throughout the continent. Um, their main concern was about their own personal welfare. So they all gathered in Berlin in 1884 in the home of the then-Chancellor, and they decided to set some ground rules. I've got as to, how I've got to put a name up. to him, Otto von Bismarck, for heaven's sake. Yes, Otto von Bismarck, um, who gathered everyone there, and and they all just set out some ground rules, you know, on how you could claim a piece of land for yourself. Um, they didn't necessarily care about the morality of it, you know. They decided that it was within their right to do so. 
that Africans were uncivilized people um, and that what they were offering to them, um, which they claimed was civilization, commerce and Christianity, would turn these uncivilized Africans into civilized people. And so it was in the best interest of Africans that they would come and they would um, completely and utterly take over their land. And so the aim of the Berlin Conference was to set out the ground rules. And the ground rules basically said that you can arrive, you can plant a flag, and you had to show that you had some control over the local population. Um, That can either be by total brute force, or it can be by manipulating uh, certain kings and queens into signing contracts that would give away their land for eternity. I'm reminded of Churchill in a moment of almost indifference, creating Iraq, there's there's a 16-foot map of what Mm. you'd call topographic nonsense (laughs) outlined by men who'd never set foot in 90% of the African continent. They'd never been there. They'd been onto the outskirts and they'd, they'd understandably found incredible treasures and so they figured, you know, there must be much more wonderful things in the inside, um, which there were. And so they, they had no idea of what they were drawing. Um, and that continued up until these countries were drawn. You know, one of the most important things that people should remember is these are man-made countries. Um, they make very little sense. They were not created for uh, the well-being of the local population. Forgive me for interrupting, but the, the opposite was true because different ethnic groups and cultures are forced to become a nation and uh, over and over again, the setup is just destined for disaster. Yeah, it, w- it was designed for disaster. Um, you know, about 10% of all ethnic groups were broken up. About 30% of all African borders are just straight lines, you know, and... I, you know, anyone who uh, would set out to draw uh, the borders of a country would consider the ethnic makeup of that country, who spoke which languages, who worshipped which gods, um, you know, which ethnic groups had a history of going to war with other ethnic groups. You know, these are the sort of considerations one might consider when they're trying to design a country. But, you know, none of this was in the the thinking of of the of the colonialists who came, you know, their aim was how can we extract as much resources as possible? Was it possible for countries as they gained independence to, to any extent, to redraw the maps? That was a key question during the independence era. You know, what, what should we do with these countries that on paper don't make any sense? They don't work. We are divided nations of multitude of ethnic groups. Um, and so after, uh, in sort of the early 1960s, there was an organization called the African, it's now the African Union, uh, met. And they, that was the first question, you know, should we try and redraw the whole thing? And the conclusion was that it would lead to more chaos. You know, what you'd end up having is bigger nations would get their sway over smaller nations. They would have their, you know, they would have their pick of of the, the the best land and the resources. And, it you know, that decision showed a lot of restraint. Um, countries like Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, these comically large nations, the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, you know, they, they would have benefited, whereas smaller countries would have certainly have suffered um, from this redrawing of the borders. But it also meant, of course, that uh, a place like Rwanda was just a, a time bomb which would eventually explode. Absolutely. Um, and we've, we've seen these exploding time bombs throughout the region. Um, and Rwanda is a great example of that. You know, 
um, you have ethnic groups who have spent the last few decades simply fighting for power. Um, and that's that's what was left to these countries. I'm talking to uh, Dippo Faloyan, author of Africa is Not a Country. It's interesting that your parents are older than the country they were born mm. in. It's remarkable, you know. Um, one thing we forget is that this is all recent history. Ni- Nigeria, where we're from, um, you know, gained its independence in 1960. Um, and, you know, my parents are older than that. And, you know, these countries have had very little time, if any time really, to build a national identity for themselves. Um, and that's something that's just not really appreciated. You know, when people look at Africa, they think of famine and problems and devastation and disaster. But when you start to realize that these countries have had a very short time to, to work with nations that were not of their own doing, um, that, you know, then you start to see that in many cases, for certain countries, you know, this is a story of successes rather than failures. You make the point that in many cases independence was so recent that the figures who liberated them still run them and clearly they'd often be uh, better suited to the battlefield. Certainly. Um, you know, many countries, their founding fathers are not only still alive but many of them are still fighting for power. Um, you know, these founding fathers were often military men, highly trained military men, who literally had to fight for their nation's independence. Um, And so when independence did come, you know, they felt like it was their right to govern. And many people agreed, you know, they they had fought for their liberation in bloody difficult battles. Um, And so for a lot of people, they felt like it was their right to govern. Um, But unfortunately, in many cases, these men were not necessarily suited to, you know, democratic governance, where they were better suited to uh, the battlefield. You draw a link between the prevalence of dictatorships and Western interference. I guess that came from playing tribal groups against each other. Yeah, it was it was designed that way. Especially Britain developed a policy of divide and rule to hold off independence. Um, they would take certain ethnic groups, they would favour one ethnic group over the other, they would they would bribe unscrupulous men um, and give them power and status within their ethnic groups, and they would set them off other ethnic groups so that the you know so that ethnic groups wouldn't work together um, to fight for independence. and And what that created was you know a, a real love for power in many groups, and and there was a realization that you know that without unity, it was simply just a fight for who can hoard as much resources for their own people as possible. People listening to our conversation will be surprised that despite all the talk of despots and dictators, less than 10% of the continent is under authoritarian rule. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we see all the time in depictions of, of Africa in popular culture, especially you know, there is this idea that this is a land that's completely overrun by warlords in four by fours, snatching children off the street. Um, and that just simply isn't the case, you know. At, at the at the time when these countries were formed, yeah, you know, they had democracies in many cases that didn't quite fit the makeup of the local population and their traditions and their beliefs, you know. Um, and, you know and, and that can create a certain rough patch where you're where you're swapping power um, quickly, but you know, in that in that time, a lot of nations have, the vast majority of countries, 
over 90% have adopted forms of democracy and they're trying to make those democracies work. You know, this is not uh, this is not a region that does not appreciate the importance of one man, one vote. Um, it's a place that has worked incredibly hard to, to develop systems of governance that suit their countries. You see Hollywood as the ringleader of, uh, well, popular cultures, lazy stereotypes... Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's so easy to ingest these stereotypes when they're wrapped around entertainment specifically. Um, and that's certainly what we've seen in the years. You know, when you when you think of Hollywood's depiction of, of Africa, um, right back to films about like out of Africa, you know, normally Africans are in tribal groups and small villages, uh, you know, waiting for someone from the West to come in and save them. Um, you know, we, we very rarely see uh, complex, nuanced stories of 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 love and of science and you know of 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 incredible thinking you know what we often see are stories where you know i i one of the chapters is called there is no such thing as an african accent um and you know i i call it that because what we've come to expect from depictions of an african country is just this this monolithic uh view of the region is you know everyone is struggling suffering waiting to be saved by a great hero from the West who comes to liberate them. You cite the uh, the 2018 blockbuster Black Panther. Why? More because of the intent of the film. You know, the film really tried to depict a country that was independent, that stood on its own, um, that was specific. You know, they, they tried with, with the accents and the language and the dress and the specific cultures of Wakanda to try and depict somewhere... That was that was free and had its own destiny in its own hands, um, and that imagining is incredibly important because it's so rare to see. Um, and it's not it's not to say that you know that's the only way that the continent should be depicted. Again, you know, Africa is any can be anything and everything. You know, it can be stories of great triumph, it can be stories of great struggle, and everything that might exist in between that. It can be funny, it can be sad, um, and I think that that's. The intention is incredibly important to try and depict things with as much nuance and specificity as possible. Deepo, you introduce us to the late uh, Kenyan activist and author, mm. uh, Binyavanga Wanana, who did a fantastic job of calling this out. Absolutely, you know, and um, he, he wrote a brilliant piece um, many years ago called How to Write About Africa, which was a satire um, and that focused on kind of literature and the way books have long depicted the continent. Um, and he, he was he was brilliant. You know, he was someone who used humor um, to push back against these harmful stereotypes. You know, which I which I try and 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 replicate in the book um, because I think it's just a really important way to make it clear to people the absurdity of the way in which the world has long uh, depicted Africa. I love the angry email he sent to uh, to yeah. Granta after they yeah. published an yeah. African issue which had nothing written by anyone actually from the continent. Let me let me quote from How to yeah. Write About Africa. Never have a picture of a well-adjusted African on the cover of your book or in it unless that African has won the Nobel Prize, an AK-47, prominent ribs, naked breasts, use these. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and many of your listeners will immediately be able to picture, um, you know, the the the, the stark um, images that are constantly pushed of, of the region. And, 
you know, it's almost just stock imagery at this point. Um, and it was brilliant, you know, and he contacted the the editors of Granter and, you know, he, he pointed out how ridiculous it was and um, to have an African issue that had nobody from Africa um, giving their views on the region, you know, <laughs> and, and thankfully they they responded with the, the right amount of grace and, and, you know, at least in their case, they tried to, they tried to work against that. Time to tell us about the white saviour complex, please, Deepa. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is something that we see in, um, especially in the development industry um, and charities, this idea that, that, you know, only goodness can come to Africa when it's presented by a, a white person. You know, this idea that um, Africa is a region that is sitting around suffering um, in pain um, and there is this obsession to place uh, you know the Western world in the center of that is the great saviors of the region um, and we've seen that you know I use this example of you know Kony 2012 which is this year marks the 10 year, 10 year anniversary of Kony 2012 and the imagery that was used in that film that tried to call for Western intervention to capture one individual in Uganda who wasn't even in Uganda at the time um, and I talk about it because the imagery can be incredibly harmful to these countries. You know, this when people think about Africa, these are the images that come up in their minds of of suffering, of of pain, of of malnourished children. Um, and when that is all that people think about, they lose sight of of this region. They lose they they it's they make it incredibly difficult for people to build connections with countries um, to see it as anything more than just pain and suffering. And in Uganda's case, you know, they had been enjoying an increase in tourism revenue, but then the film came out and for the first time in, you know, about five years, they saw a drop in their tourism revenue um, because, you know, you don't want to go to a country where you believe that it's being completely overrun by a single warlord. Deepo, I know you're not against charitable initiatives entirely, mm -hmm. but uh, you also are, um, well... You have mixed feelings about celebrity activists like Geldof and Madonna, don't you? What's important is to think how you're doing it. You know, there are wonderful people who work in aid agencies who genuinely want to see a better world. And I think it's important that, you know, we, we maintain that in our lives. The, the, the point is to always think whether you're causing more harm than good. Um, and the example I give in the book is to, if you're wondering, you know, what side of this uh, you know, how to how to engage with this issue, you know, think about how you might act in your own country, you know, think about if you were to go to a homeless shelter in Sydney, you know, would you, um, you know, would you stop everyone there and ask them to take a photo with you and post a picture on your Instagram with someone else's child, you know, that's something that you, people don't do, but, you know, when they come to Africa, they think that it's it's appropriate. Um, and so I think, you know, with, with these celebrity back campaigns, you know, what we've seen historically is that they've been able to garner a huge amount of attention, um, but not necessarily in the right ways. And I think it's important that we take stock and say, look, if, if, if we want to do good anywhere in the world, we need to make sure that we do so in a way that doesn't cause more harm than good. We've done a few programs in recent years about uh, the appropriation, the stealing of uh, mm -hmm. African cultural material. We've talked about the Benin bronzes and, and so forth. I hadn't realised that 90% of Africa's material cultural legacy is still being kept outside the continent as much as that. 
it's a shocking, unbelievable statistic that even every single time I think about it, you know, it 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 fills me with such anger. Um, but yes, you know, throughout the colonial era, artifacts were were stolen from from the continent. And one thing that I want to you know, I want people to take away from this book is that it, it wasn't as if the theft was something that happened, you know, decades and decades and decades ago. It's an ongoing theft. You know, the reason why the artifacts were taken then was because they were of great material worth. Um, and that's the exact same reason why the artifacts are, are still being kept. And there's no reason why this ongoing theft should continue. Um, you know, African countries would would happily loan back a considerable amount of their artifacts, you know, on their own terms. I think that's the key thing. Macron has made some gestures, hasn't he? Yes, he has. And, um, you know, it was it was through, um, you know, France's initiatives that we were able to, to best understand the depth of that um, ongoing theft. You know, uh, unfortunately, um, the, the major uh, museums, especially here in Europe, haven't done enough yet to return these artifacts um about 800 you know the the british museum holds about 800 benin bronzes that are never on display you know they're just kept in that's, the bowels of the museum that's a double crime isn't it yeah it's it's it's, it's horrendous it's it's you know they they're just they're just there in um in storage you know and, and this is and so occasionally you'll hear in the news you know one or two are being returned you know but we're talking about as you said, 90% of the continent's material cultural legacy, um, thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of items um, that are being kept from uh, the countries that own them. I, I used to be, perhaps I'm still on it, a, a committee for the restitution of the so-called Elgin marbles to Greece. But the, the arguments that museums use are so tendentious, are so ridiculous... They are, they are absurd. Um, they make no sense whatsoever. And I, I think the thing is, you know, they, they like when they were taken originally and now, you know, they realise that the power and they have the power imbalance. You know, African countries are obviously not going to uh, storm the British Museum to get them back. So they don't really need to make a lot of effort to try and engage in a real way with with these African countries. You know, I think what you need is... Uh, people to to really start to push back and to push back against their politicians to say, you know, this ongoing theft is simply wrong. Tell me about the uh, Robin Hood of restitution who does sort of go in and uh, just take things back. Yeah, there, there have been there have been a couple of examples um, of this, but um, you know, there's there's a Congolese activist who has for for a, a while now has he 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 doesn't so much take them back it's it's more of a um it's it's more of a symbolic move where he'll you know he'll he'll stand in um the middle of uh he'll stand in the middle of a museum he'll make a, a big announcement in a speech uh he'll grab the items and then he'll give you know he he then gives museum security plenty of time to to arrest him um but you know the, these are the, these are the frustrations of this ongoing discussion laid bare um it's in, it's incredibly incredibly difficult. I guess the, the Black Lives Matter protests uh, must have been a bit of an incentive for people to uh, behave better. They were certainly meant to shift the discussion, and I think that they did an incredible amount of work in shifting the discussion. You know, we've seen in in Belgium statues of King Leopold, um, who 
you know, he was responsible for the death of half the population of the Democratic Republic of Congo when he was um, in charge of the region. Um, it is, it has always haunted me. It has to be, you know, second only to the Holocaust in its horror. It, it's it's un, it's sort of it's almost unspeakable horror. You know, he he had he he never once stepped foot in Africa for his entire life. He never would step foot in in Africa, um, and he he took charge of a, a gigantic region of Central Africa. He then quickly realised that it was incredibly expensive to run, so he put previously free people to work as slaves um, to feed the growing rubber industry around the world. And as a result of that slavery, you know, half the population, about 10 million people died in, in his short reign. And, and yet there are statues of him and, and roads and buildings named after him um, in Europe. Tell me about Jamie Oliver's um, unintentional <laughs> act of folly. Yes, uh, Jamie got himself involved um, right in the middle of, of a long-standing uh, battle called the Jolof Wars. Um, many Western African countries have their own version of a dish called jollof rice. As, as I say in the book, I'm not neutral, so I will declare Nigeria is the best right now. Um, but Jamie uh, decided to do his own version of the dish. Um, and, you know, it's a dish that means a lot to uh, many pe- millions of people across the region. So people reacted with, uh, with a mixture of anger and disgust as he, uh, as he probably took it a little bit too lightly. Um, his, his version didn't seem to resonate with, with anyone. Um, but the Jollof Wars really is just, it's, it's, it's a joyful rivalry across the region. And I wanted to talk about it because it offers a really great example um, of you know, both literally and sort of like directly this idea that, you know, African countries have their own flavors and their own seasonings. Um, And food culture is really one really great way of bringing that to light. Deepo, what are some of the important things happening on the continent we don't hear enough about you? You mentioned, for example, the mobilization of people power. Absolutely. You know, we're seeing an incredible amount of youth-led activism throughout the region. Um, firstly, you know, people are making huge strides and trying to define their, the future of their countries for themselves. Um, and I think that it's such an important wave that we're seeing around the region um, that shows that, you know, Africans are not just helpless people. Um, each individual country will set its own futures um, and I think that that's, you know, one example, but we're seeing it in everything from culture to politics to tech. Um, you know, the, the region is leading in, in, is leading in so many ways and is, is adding its voice to so many different movements. And well, one of the movements I know it's uh, very active in is, um, is climate change. We did a program where we talked to a, a young Ugandan woman who uh, made the point that while uh, Africa contributes a minuscule percentage of emissions, it is leading the fight in many ways. Absolutely. Um, We're seeing that in so many countries who are investing uh, in clean energy, um, you know, and and as you said, you know, Africa Africa is, it's completely a negligible amount, it's contributing a negligible amount um, to global warming, but it's seeing a huge amount of impact. Um, We're seeing a rise in a number of uh, really, really terrible extreme climate weather events across uh, southern and eastern Africa. Um, and I think, you know, that's one thing that we, we really, really need to get 
a hold of um, across the world, you know, because a lot of African countries are really, really suffering from the impacts of climate change. And they're doing their best to contribute to trying to push back against uh, global warming. Tell me about uh, Nollywood, the second largest movie industry in the world. Nollywood is a great example of how important it is for African countries to be given the platforms to tell their own stories. Uh, Nollywood has grown to become the second largest film industry in the world because of how wonderful it is at telling the stories of Nigerians. Um, It's specifically for the Nigerian film uh, industry, but it also is spread across the region because people just love how how warm the stories is, how true the stories are to Nigerian culture. Um, And, you know, we've seen that grow into into other industries like Afrobeats and and how impactful uh, musicians like, you know, Burner Boy and Wizkid are across the world. Because when you start to see African countries depicted in their own accents and in their own ways, people really connect with that. You know, you don't have to just be Nigerian to appreciate the music and the the films, you know. And and so that success has come from uh, starting to really appreciate the frequencies of individual countries and that's where the success of Nollywood is, is, is really grown from. I grew up in an Australia with where the film industry, the local film industry, had been destroyed by the oligopoly of uh, Hollywood and and Britain and uh, we had exactly the same problem. We, Our kids had no local heroes. Their heroes yeah. were Americans. They never heard an Australian accent from the screen. Yeah. Yeah, and we we saw that you know when when I was younger, it was certainly something similar. You know, um, musicians and and films didn't really depict the the local culture. You know, but then Nollywood stepped into that gap, and the success of it. Uh, you know, they they've 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 signed recent deals with Netflix, and it just shows that you know varied depictions of an African country can be successful and can and is incredibly meaningful to to people. Um, and so it's so important that we have those depictions again in the future. And on that happy note, I thank you for coming on the little program. Deepo Falloyan is a senior editor at Vice and his debut book is Africa is Not a Country, Breaking Stereotypes of Modern Africa, and it's published by Penguin Random House. Thanks, Deepo. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute privilege to be here. Coming up, let's head back to Lagos to meet some of the city's most vivid characters. Older listeners may remember my chat many years ago with Wale Yinka, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And tonight you're going to meet Elusa Osunde, who's a writer for the Paris Review, a visual artist, filmmaker and now author of a novel called Vagabonds, with an exclamation mark. It's getting rave reviews from the likes of the New York Times, The Guardian and The New Yorker. Now, the book tells the stories of some of the outsiders in the city of Lagos, which, uh, of course, 
Depot for Loin has just been describing, but we're going to learn a lot more about it because this book tells the story of the outsiders in the city, in particular the gay, lesbian and transgender people who, she says, must live in the cracks. So I'm very pleased to welcome you, Alosa, online from Nigeria. We've heard about uh, we've heard about depots of Lagos. What's yours like? Hi, Philip. This is so great. I just want to say first of all that I'm enjoying this conversation already. Thank you very much for that glowing introduction. Lagos. What's my Lagos like? Um, my Lagos is very loud. Um, it's very musical. It's very agile. It's very full. It's very busy. And, yeah, I think it just has a lot of character. Well, you've got 21 million people there, so in a sense there's a different story for every one of them. Exactly, yes. I didn't realise that it was a city of bookshops and music and art and theatre and dancing. Oh, yes. There is so much music um, just coming out of Nigeria right now. And I think that that's one of the first things you hear as soon as you get into Lagos. You hear sound, you hear loudspeakers, and you hear music. Yeah. It's also the centre of the West African film music and television industries. Yes, yes. I must say that uh, when he was describing it, uh, the main point that Depot made was that the traffic was terrible. <laughs> Yes, it's some of the worst traffic in the world, as has been remarked in many places. <laughs> yes. Now, Alosa, you've spent crazy. most of your life in Lagos, but you don't live there now. Is there a reason you yes. left? Yes. Um, Lagos stopped fitting about four years ago. I stopped feeling like it was a place for me because it was asking for too much for the season of my life that I was in. I think Lagos has given me so much um, in this lifetime. It's helped me to become more clear about all the things that I want. But I think sometimes you get to a point with the city where it no longer works for you um, because it's, it's too fast or it's too loud or it's too demanding at the time. And I think that's what happened with Lagos. So now I live in a different city in Nigeria called Abuja. Now, it's a city which is full of young people seeking adventure, but your book is full of warnings for those trying to make a life there, particularly if yes. you're different. Yes, exactly. Um, I think <laughs> Lagos is a city that you need um, warnings about, but also like a few, like a manual. You need a manual to, 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 to move through it. And that's not because it's unsurvivable, but it's because you need to know like what rules um, the city works with. And so, yeah, I wanted to include that in the book because some of the things that are mentioned there will very much guide how people approach the city. One of your characters says this, to work in Lagos, you have to give up something. Everybody does, even the high and mighty. Some people give up their languages, some their names, some their sanity, some their conscience, some their ears, their eyes, and so forth. What did you give up to work there? Peace. Um, 
I think I gave up peace for a long time because I was like, my, that wasn't my priority. My priority was progress, you know? And I think that sometimes you need to be in a city that allows you to keep on creating momentum. And I think Lagos was very good for that. But it did take peace from me. Your book is called Vagabonds, but the word means something very different in Nigeria than it does in the West. Tell me about it. Okay. Um, so there, there are many uses of the word vagabond in Nigeria and the regular uses that we know everywhere else in the world. And then there is also another definition of the word which is found in the constitution. The Nigerian constitution, as at now, refers to anyone who is queer or who deviates from gender norms as a vagabond. And so this, the book and the book's title were basically pulled from that definition. I, I'm sorry, in the constitution? Yes. That is so Hello. extraordinary. So homosexuality is illegal, but your book... It is illegal. But your book brings the, the queer community out of the shadows. How difficult is life for these communities in Lagos? I think it depends. It depends on um, a number of factors, right? Um, I think that, as the book portrays, different people who are queer have completely different realities. So there are um, just a number of things that can make insulation possible. So money is one of them, or like class differences, or I don't know, spiritual power, whatever kind of power um, you have in addition to your queerness basically defines what experience you're going to have with it in Lagos. So for some people, it is literally hell because like they can't really navigate the city without it being clear that they are queer. And so some people are more open to violence than others. But not everybody who is queer in Lagos is, is experiencing immediate violence. And you also say that your characters have threads of strength and hope. Yes. I really like that the characters in this book make choices that are life-affirming, even in a city like Lagos that demands so much. I didn't realise how religious a city Lagos is and how powerful the Pentecostal movement is, uh, is getting there. It's quite influential in my country as well. But does this worry you? Mm-hmm. Is, do you think there's something in the Nigerian character that responds to that sort of religiosity? I do. I think that uh, Nigeria is a place that... Um is full of need right now. Um, so many people need things. And I think that the, the, the Pentecostal movement or just even religiosity in general is a way that people use to find solace, you know? Um, and so uh, I don't know that it bothers me because I think that even though I'm not a Christian anymore, um, I can see how that's a place of comfort and a place of safety for people. And I can see how that gives, like just having a religion, a faith, gives some people a will to live. Were you brought up in a religious uh, household, Alusa? Yes, I was brought up in a Christian home. 
And um, yeah, I veered away from that eventually. So I'm no longer a Christian, but I was brought up in a Christian house. Yes. So you have a faith, but it doesn't have a, a name you can put to it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. How about you? I'm a, I'm, I'm a lifelong atheist, and I understand that <laughs> I like atheism that. is not all that uh, is rather frowned upon in parts of Nigeria. Yes, exactly. Perhaps you can tell us the story of Thomas, who comes to Lagos, bringing with him stories from his own family about where the dangers mm-hmm. might lie in a big city. What are some of the beliefs he decided to test? Um, So some of the beliefs that Thomas decides to test are, well, they're actually stories that I grew up on as well. And I think that a lot of Nigerians know, uh, which is why I started the book that way. Um, One of them is the idea that if you go to a market and you look between your legs, um, you could get sucked in to a different realm altogether, which is very alive and very like there all the time. And so in this story, Thomas is testing out, um, he's testing out stories that he actually heard from his uncle. And the story shows us what happens when you dare a myth, basically. Like if you look at a myth and you say, oh, I wonder if you're true. The story basically tells us what could happen when you do that. I was fascinated by the story of the mythical football games that you talk about (laughs) when you're talking about this overlap between myth and truth. A mythical football football game, please explain. (laughs) Okay, so growing up, there was this story um, that went around and still goes around, actually. People still believe this, um, that Nigeria was in a match with India and depending on who you ask, you might hear that the score was 100-0, or you might hear that it was 99-0, or you might hear that it was 99-1. And so we all grew up around around this story. So people, um, my parents know this story, I know this story, my friends know this story, and it's a story that just goes around as fact. So when, you, when you're talking to someone about this football match, they might tell you, yes, I remember it, it was 100-0. Or they might tell you, I remember it, it was 99-0. But when I was writing the book, I did some research into the, ma- into the match because I was thinking about it. And what I found was a BBC interview where <laughs> Nigerians were asked about the match and different Nigerians had different answers to that question. And so I wanted to put that into the story and just put that into Thomas's experience because it is a well-known but Alosa, the, the, the part of the story that I found so fascinating was that the Indian players turned into balls of fire every time they had the ball. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's also part of the story. And some people still take that myth seriously. Yes, yes. This is still happening now. One of the most interesting um, responses to the to the book had been Nigerians finding out that the match wasn't actually, that the match actually didn't happen. <laughs> like, people are still shocked, you know, in reading the book that that didn't happen. You are a visual artist. Do you think these yeah. skills help you as a writer 
to create this very vibrant visual description of Lagos and its characters? I think it does. I think the visual art as a discipline just sharpens my ability to say what I mean in very definite terms. Um, so, yeah, I would definitely say that it feeds into my practice as a writer. You're making a film of the book, I understand. Yes. <laughs> will it, will yes, it, will it be called uh, Vagabonds? No, it will be called Tatafo after one of the main characters who, like, takes us through the book. In an interview, you yeah. said that your work is more powerful than your shame. What does that mean? <laughs> I think... Um, thank you for asking that. I really like that question. <laughs> thank you so much for asking that. Um, it means... Actually, let me start from here. When I was writing the book, one of the hardest things to do wasn't actually writing. One of the hardest things to do was to believe that I deserve to write a book that's full of courage. Um, and there was a lot of shame that came up there for me. And I realized that I felt ashamed in a way of my voice. I felt ashamed of the things that I desire to write about. I felt ashamed of the things that I desire to read about. And so... Um, Making this book was basically an exercise in reminding myself that what I am writing about is more important than all the shame that I gathered growing up in the world. Um, so, yeah, that's what that means to me. Is there much queer literature in Nigeria? We're growing stories right now. Um, so it's not that there isn't a lot of queer Nigerian literature in the mainstream, but there are a lot of queer Nigerian short stories or a lot of queer Nigerian writers who haven't put out books just yet. Now, before I let you go, I have to ask you to read a little from a chapter <laughs> called Overheard, A Conversation, because it concerns a namesake of mine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Overheard, a conversation. Location, under Third Mainland Bridge. Mr. Adams entered the congregation on a sweltering afternoon after a truck fell off Ojuelegba Bridge and crushed his car into a rumpled sheet of metal. He'd been scrolling through Twitter on his Blackberry, cackling at yet another trending topic just the second before. He was confused when he first left himself because what silence was this? It filled him madly. Now, here he was under a bridge on the island when his last memory was on the other side of town entirely. Who could explain it? Welcome, the guard said, large black wings fluttering behind him, interrupting Mr. Adams's thoughts. Sit down. The guard's entire face was charcoal. It was clear he had eyes of some sort, that he could see Mr. Adams, because his head followed when Adams moved. He had teeth, too. It was obvious, from the roundedness of his speech. But it was the kind of face that depended on your imagination to be complete. There was no way to make sense of it without getting close enough to be rude. It wasn't an ugly face. Or frightening, really. 
it was just unclear. Introduce yourself, said the guard. Tell us how you got here. Mr. Adams cleared his throat. I'm Adams, he said. The guard's eyes stayed on him. Yes. And why are you here? Oh. He would have laughed if there was room for that. I'm still trying to figure it out myself, you know? You know the randomness with which chaos and disaster happen in this country? I find it kind of funny, actually. It still feels like a dream. The congregation blinked back at him curiously, and he continued. I'm not sure how it happened. There was Goslo, and I was bored, so I was looking at my phone when something heavy landed on my car. I lost feeling, and then I thought, what? And now I'm here. He furrowed his eyebrows and cleared his throat. It didn't take as long as I had expected something like that to. Getting here didn't feel how I thought it would. I don't know if that's because I didn't suffer too much or because I don't remember it, but it was um, quick. A brief silence followed and he cleared his throat again, trying to meet all their eyes. The guard started a slow applause and his wings heaved behind him as the rest joined in. So yeah, Mr. Adams said shyly, that's me. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think there's some very good advice in that for this Mr. Adams to follow. And uh, it's, been, <laughs> it's been a delight to talk to you, Alosa. My guest has Thank been Alosa so Osunde, author of Vagabonds, published by Fourth Estate, and she was talking to me from Nigeria. That's your lot. Thanks to the team, E.P. Anna Whitfeld, Catherine Zingara, Anne Arnold, Taran Priadko, Jackie Dent and Sasha Fegan. We'll be back next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.